Hello and welcome to another episode of the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency. I would like to remind you all that we have just launched our print edition and I'd like to encourage you all to subscribe. You can do that by going to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and there you can take advantage of our various offers. I'm joined today by Andrew Basevich, who is president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And we're going to be talking about Donald Trump's foreign policy. Andy, you have an excellent piece uh, in the upcoming edition of Spectator USA, in which you say that finally we have uh, a clearly defined Trump doctrine and that it was defined in this tweet. We will fight where it is only to our benefit and only to win. Do you see this as an improvement in foreign policy or as a doctrine to what we had before? Well, I, you know, I need to emphasize that, that to some degree this piece is intended to be tongue in cheek. Yeah. The president of the United States is really not capable of, of thinking in terms that are rooted in history, in serious history. He's, he's not capable of... of uh, putting together anything that would amount to really a comprehensive and, and principled approach to America's role in the world. But for all of his faults, it does seem to be the case, and, and, and Lord knows why, that he does have an aversion to wars that just drag on and on and don't seem to advance the interests of the United States. So on that point at least, or perhaps I should say on that point only, uh, it seems to me that the president is, is, is saying something that uh, other American citizens should be attentive to. Would you say it's in fact because of perhaps his limited attention span or, or whatever you want to call it, stupidity if you want to call it that, that he cannot compute the complexity of war and therefore he tends to avoid it? I hadn't thought of that, but I, I think there's something to it. And, and I might even expand on your thought a little bit. It, it is certainly the case that, that war, any war, is a complex undertaking. But I think what's more relevant here is that what we might call the, the habits that define U.S. national security policy, habits that have grown over time, probably dating since the very early part of the, of the Cold War, have become so deeply embedded in the way Washington thinks that almost nobody even pays attention to them anymore. But Trump does. So, so Trump, Trump starts to ask a, a series of questions that, that make members of the establishment uncomfortable. And one, one of them is, well, why, why are we involved in these wars that drag on and on? Yeah. One of them is all this all this mucking around we've been doing in the Middle East. What have we gotten out of it? And uh, why? Why at this stage of the game is it incumbent upon the United States to defend Europe, which is not the Europe of 1949 when NATO was founded uh, and, and its principal adversary, Russia? is not the adversary of the Soviet Union that existed back in 1949. So Trump asked a bunch of questions. Again, it it seems unlikely that he fully understands 
the implications of even posing those questions. But those questions do pose a threat to the habits of national security. To what extent, thinking about Syria this week and Turkey, to what extent is it just pure theatre, though? Because, I mean, yes, he's pulling the troops out, but there is still quite a large American presence in the Middle East. And, I mean, to what extent is he posing as a a kind of anti-endless wars president for the sake of his voters who, quite rightly, oppose endless wars because they are a waste of blood and money that goes on forever and ever? Well, everything he does is, is a theatrical performance. Yeah. There's no there's no question about that. I mean, on the other hand, one could say the same thing about almost any other president, that they tend to be theatrical performers. That that was true of Franklin Roosevelt. On, on the other hand, those previous presidents, and Franklin Roosevelt would be an, an excellent uh, example here, were also people of substance, whereas Trump is not. But but is it is it simply for show? No, I don't think so. I think rather it's this. So he, you know, he he gets up in the morning and sends a tweet or has a phone call with President Erdogan, and all of a sudden we're pulling pulling troops out of out of Syria. Is that part of a thought through reformulation of U.S. policy? Heck no. But but Trump doesn't know how to for, reformulate policy. You know, if, if if Trump were the sort of person who would assemble his advisors around a conference table in the White House and say, ladies and gentlemen, I really do intend to reduce the American military profile in the Middle East. I think our policies have been disastrously misguided. And I want you to go away and come back in two weeks and give me the plan. Give, give, give me the, the sequence of steps which will enable us to, to reduce our presence. And, and tell me what we're going to do in lieu of this emphasis on military power to try to repair the damage that the United States has done in that part of the world, you know, at least since 9-11, uh, perhaps even going back into the 19, 1980s. But of course, he is unable <laughs> even to take advice because, as he tweeted the other day, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the whole world. He's not smart, but he doesn't listen to people, and therefore, he doesn't. He himself doesn't have the capability to put together anything that 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 might comprise a strategy. So we don't have a strategy. What we have is he gets up in the morning and he tweets that we're leaving Syria, and everybody else is trying to figure out the implications of that. But isn't it staggering that this might be much better for America and the world than what's gone beforehand? This sort of transactional well, approach to foreign policy. And and and, and of course. It's good that you and I are saying this and no one will ever hear our conversation because to suggest that that Trump might be actually onto something, at least on this side of the Atlantic, is, uh, you know, you can't you can't say that. You, you're, you're putting uh, yourself you're making yourself seem insane if you say it. Is that... yeah, exactly. But but I think I think you're I'm actually trying to write a piece right now for who I don't know that, that tries to explore that there. He seems in his blind, impulsive way to be initiating a conversation about what America's role in the world ought to be here and now in the 21st century. When the world of 1945, and we just picked that date because that would seem to be the the moment when the United States really emerged as 
the leader of the free world, as we used to say, when there was something called the free world that was different from the not free world. But, but that world is gone, it seems to me. The world that we thought was going to come into existence when the Cold War ended, you know, the world, the world in which America would preside as the indispensable nation and the sole superpower, well, that world hasn't materialized. So we're, we're in a different world in which the, the habits and routines developed by the United States during the Cold War, in my judgment, are no longer particularly relevant. And it could be that Trump's historical purpose, again, he's blind to this himself, but the, his historical purpose is to begin to initiate a conversation about whether or not the accrued habits of the past, what, 70 years now, are, are, are still relevant or whether they ought to be junked in, in favor of something else. And again, to emphasize, he has not the first clue as to what ought to replace the national security policies that we have developed over time. But is this the, the idea that I've heard batted about sometimes that he's a Hegelian figure, that he's a, world, a figure of world historical importance, partly because he doesn't even know what he's doing? Well, I think, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm increasingly inclined to think that that may be true. I mean, that he's, he will be important despite himself. Yeah. He, he, he will he will perform a, a an important historical function to which he himself is utterly oblivious. Perhaps but, it's because because in Washington, anybody who was really aware of what of what they were trying to if, if someone was trying to do this very deliberately, trying to disrupt the sort of path of American pol foreign policy since the Second World War, if they were trying to do it deliberately, they would they would go wrong. And it's because he drives the people who oppose him so mad because they know he doesn't understand what he's doing, that he's able to get away with it, as it were. With Syria, for instance, because it, it feels like he might change his mind at any moment, it, it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a course of action that he's thought through. Therefore, people don't know quite how to resist him. Fair enough. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because tomorrow he may be singing a totally different tune. So what, what, what tune are we supposed to pay attention to? Which one, which one are we to take seriously? I think I think you're exactly right. With the Syrian news and, and Turkey this week, I think what's interesting is how he brings out the opposition of the Republican foreign policy establishment and, for want of a better word, the Democratic one, in unison. And, and sort of all the people that have been wrong about everything, from Iraq going back even further, they all sing in unison against him. Yes, they do. I mean, that, that is the voice of the establishment. Then the voice of the establishment is a is a bipartisan voice. The point you're making there is that the the establishment is not willing to. They are oblivious to the errors and miscalculations of U.S. policy over the past you know 20, 30 years, to which both parties have contributed. You know, in his typically hyperbolic uh, way. Uh, Trump declares that our Middle East wars are the worst disaster that's ever befallen the nation. I don't know that they're quite as bad as some other disasters, but they're pretty darn bad. And as an observer of the American political scene, what I'm struck by is <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by the extent to which, for example, the Iraq war has simply been totally forgotten. You know, we're in the midst of this uh, early stages of our presidential campaign. 
much of the attention is on the dozen or so people who are running for the Democratic nomination, and we have these periodic debates, it's striking how little attention is given to the trajectory of U.S. national security policies over the past 30 years. They will certainly talk about and respond to and be critical of getting out of Syria. And they, they, will, they will say how terrible it is to betray the Kurds, even though we betrayed the Kurds on multiple occasions before. But, but there's not a hell of a lot of willingness to talk about what ought to be the principles that would guide U.S. policy at this juncture. You know, to get a little bit off topic, there's, there's, there's an increasing awareness among the political class here in the United States regarding the dangers of, of climate change. There is virtually no discussion of how addressing climate change would affect every other aspect of U.S. national security policy. It's sort of treated as if it exists in some special compartment all by, all by itself. Well, the, so the, the, debate, you mean the, the, the debate over national security uh, um, matters is exceedingly shallow and is pretty much confined to, you know, what did Trump say the day before yesterday? Yeah. So you mean when we talk about climate change or when Democratic candidates talk about climate change, they sort of assume that every other nation will go along with it because it's the right thing to do. Is that? <laughs> well, and, and because we're we're the leader of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and so. And so we, if, if we decide nobody should burn coal, <laughs> then somehow or other, uh, we think that, uh, you know, China and India are going to stop burning coal. I don't, you know, it, it seems preposterous, but, but, I mean, it, but it gets to actually a larger and more serious point, is, and, and that is that in, in many respects, the, the most important expression of U.S. national security policy as it has uh, developed since, since World War II, is this notion of American global leadership. We insist that we are the global leader. No one can play this role except us. And, and therefore, any, any backing away from global leadership, and that's what Trump's decisions on matters like Afghanistan and Syria suggest, any backing away, you know, opens the doors to chaos. I don't believe that's true. What I do believe is true is that our pretensions to being the global leader are really unsustainable given the world as it actually is and as, it, as it's becoming. And, and here, you know, we could cite global, uh, climate change as an example, but we could cite the Cite the, the 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 rise of China and the power shift in East Asia as an example. You know the notion that we live either in a 1945 world or a 1989 world simply is not sustainable. But are we in danger of, or is America in danger of, of indulging in another pretense, which is that you have a president who who thinks he's doing America first, or is is gesturing that he's doing America first policies, whereas actually America is still fighting in Afghanistan. You will still have large military presence in the Middle East. So the pretense will not be that you are global leaders. It's that you aren't global leaders, but you're still sort of trying to covertly. Well, I mean, I think I think you're pointing to the, the enormous gap uh, between what Trump says 
and, and, and what he says seems so threatening when, when, we, when we throw in into the conversation phrases like America first. The gap between what he says and what's actually happening. I mean, one of the things I've been impressed by is, is things he say may be outrageous and not well thought out and not connected to anything like, uh, you know, and here's the next six steps we're going to take on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's proven to be remarkably weak. You know, he was going to pull out of Syria. He, he, he made the announcement in December of 2018. Yeah. Didn't happen. Yeah. No, he said he's we're, we're, we're out of Afghanistan. Hadn't happened. Hell, we're leaving NATO. Hadn't happened. So I, I, this is, you know, partly the absence of an attention span, perhaps, partly the fact that he has not surrounded himself with competent subordinates who are, who are able to follow through on things that he says. Yes, or, or that perhaps his most competent subordinates, up until recently Bolton, but perhaps Pompeo, are people who have a very different idea of America's role he, in the world. Exactly. He hires people who don't actually agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> but he tries to say that that's his strength, isn't it? That he likes hearing different points of view and he can, in his infinite wisdom, can can see through all, all points of view and towards the truth. Or... Well, I, I mean, I, I, have, I don't take that all that seriously. <laughs> I mean, it seems, it seems to me that a wise uh, chief executive does surround himself with people who offer different points of view, but it's not, you know, some people say the answer is black and the other people say the answer is white. Rather, we want to be surrounded by people who appreciate that gray comes in various shades uh, and we're trying to figure out which of those shades is appropriate to the, you know, to the issue at hand. But, he, but the truth, we, there is no evidence that I am aware of that, that he takes seriously advice coming from any quarter. I mean, maybe I, there's a caveat, let me add a caveat, and that is there does seem to be some evidence that whoever is the last person he talks to, he says, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. so, so he appropriates that and charges off without really subjecting that idea to any uh, serious uh, analysis. He's like a mental cushion. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and but lastly, Andy, what, what, let's say Trump loses the election next year, and say Elizabeth Warren becomes president. Do you think this disruption he's had on sort of pattern of American foreign policy? Do you think that'll just be forgotten, and the and the establishment, the, the national security establishment, will reassert itself, or do you think he's tapped into something? He's proven that it is popular. And that American policy will, will will change. Well, it's certainly true that the national security establishment will attempt to reassert itself. I mean, they they have not conceded an iota to Trump's America First mantra, to Trump's uh, you know insistence upon uh, ending endless wars. The part that's harder to you know get a grip on, I think, is whether or not. Trump has introduced into the body politic an awareness that maybe endless wars are stupid. And so, yes, yeah, so let's imagine a centrist Democrat wins the, uh, the nomination. Can, can that centrist Democrat now installed in the White House basically revert to the policies of George W. Bush and Barack Obama? The establishment will say, heck yes. Mm. 
But it could be that that new president trying to explain why, yes, we are going to stay in Syria from now until the cows come home, may, may confront some opposition. And, and I, I'm not in a position to even speculate on how that might uh, play out. I guess, so I guess what I'm saying is it's very difficult for us to tell at this juncture whether the Trump effect, whatever that is, is going to uh, out, outlive the Trump presidency. Well, Andy, I hope that we'll talk about it before the end of the Trump presidency and beyond. I'd enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 